0: It's a little overcast outside. It might be overcast in our heart, but we will warm it up right here. I'm glad that you're here today. My name's Steve. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, We currently don't have a, a minister. We're in the midst of that search. We don't have an update, just that interviews are happening. So thanks for your patience with that. Until then, I'm still here. And you're disappointed, but that's fine. Generally... If you ask non-Christians about Jesus, they have a positive reaction toward him. Like, you'll be very hard-pressed to find somebody make a very strong case of why they don't like Jesus. Even among religions that stand opposed to him, They found a way to soften up their stance against Jesus. Because he's such a popular individual. And I would say for us Christians. That's usually the best thing that we have going about our faith right. Because we don't usually want to staple our faith to other Christians. Because some of them can be wacky. But I can always come back to Jesus. And lift him up. And say here is an example. Of one of the holiest people who have ever lived. But that brings within Christians who are active in the world a certain tension. And that tension is in the fact of not just who Jesus was, but what he said. Because one of the reasons that Jesus was so popular historically is because of what he taught. There are many things that even non-Christians grasp to as wonderful wisdom that Jesus said that makes him even more mythological. The problem that we can have is when we neglect to see who Jesus thought he really was. And I know the ladies are doing a study, uh, one of the groups are doing a study in mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis, decades ago, went into this concept. But the issue that some people neglect to understand about Jesus is that he wasn't just a person who claimed to be a, a, a great teacher. He believed he was something different John chapter 14 is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. And as Jesus is answering an exchange between his followers and him. About what it means to be one of his followers. And who he believed he was. In John chapter 14 verse 6. In response to a question. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if we elevate that verse within this mythology of Jesus, what we have to understand is that it wasn't just that Jesus was somebody who claimed to be a special person, a teacher, a miracle worker. Basically, friends, what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 14 is that if you do not come to me, you cannot access God. I am the way. Friends, what Jesus offers here is a statement of exclusivity. What Jesus is saying right here is that I am the right way. And that's difficult for us who live in a pluralistic world today, isn't it? I come across many people in my daily uh, daily interactions. Some some who are wonderful people but have absolutely no faith system at all. Some who are amazing, amazing human beings and yet subscribe to other religious constructs like Islam or Hinduism or Judaism. There, there, There are wonderful people that we interact with all the time who would find this statement of Jesus offensive because what we are saying is if we believe in Jesus, if I'm going to be a follower of him, is that he is the way. Does that jibe in a world of like today? Is it a, are we able today to be able to assert who Jesus said he was in a world that does not appreciate those who claim to have truth? And that, friends, is going to be the basis of the next eight weeks here at Echo Church as we study through the scriptures and the New Testament book of Colossians. And, you know, it's one of these books that um, it's nice because it's tidy and it's short. Maybe you've not spent a lot of time in this book. But the question that the writer of the book was trying to grapple with is the same thing that I believe that we are trying to do today is what does it mean then to follow a Jesus who believes that he is the way. So what we're going to continue to explore for the weeks to come is why Jesus wins in light of this book. So we are in Colossians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. If you have a digital Bible, feel free to pull it up on your iPad or smart phone. If you have a blue Bible in the pews before us, what page are we on, Burke? 8, 833. If you want to find your way there. And we are going to go through the first part of of Colossians chapter 1. And Burke is going to be reading for us today. And Burke, if you could start off reading verse 1 of Colossians chapter 1, please.
1: Paul, an apostle of of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. That's a
0: good start. That's it. That's all I want. I know I cut you off. That's it. I mean, and you know what's even funny about that? I had you read like 10 words. We're well, not even going to focus on Timothy right now. That's somebody, we'll catch up with him later. There, he's got his own book of the Bible written after him. But, you know, Paul wrote it. So let, let's ignore Timothy here for a minute. Let's just look at the overall study of what we're trying to do. In your blue Bible, you can flip through a couple pages and find even the end of Colossians. It's not a very long book. The, the number of words here are only about 1,500 words. But recognize this, is that this Letter that Paul writes, also known as an epistle, an epistle, say that five times fast and not sound like you're cussing. In, in letter writing in the ancient world, it was very popular to send letters, even though it's not so much today anymore. But standard letters in Paul's day are usually less than 100 words because parchment was very valuable and you didn't want to write too much. Notice this is that this is a short letter of the bible and yet paul uses 15 times as much as a regular person now we live in this day and age today where we want the tldr version of things right the too long didn't read version i want synopses of everything give me bullet points like condense everything to the least that i need to know so i can grab the information and move on i really believe today that a lot of people approach their faith in that same thing too right It's like, hey, I just want to know the answer to this question. Can you tell me? Good, I'll move on. This is why religious leaders usually have a higher level of respect because they are supposed to be the ones that dole out the important information for you to hear. And it's interesting is that even within my networks and Bible-believing churches and in churches that just really value the idea of study, what I see is most people then go to find these religious teachers on Facebook, write a question on their wall, they wait for an answer, and they're like, thank you very much for that response. Because they don't want the burden of having to work through things. Paul could have just used a hundred words or less to try to summarize everything he wanted the Colossians to know. And yet he goes farther. And again, notice this. In other books, he goes even more than that. I think there's an important lesson to be grasped, even about the length of what Paul writes here, is that some of our deepest questions, friends, take time to work through. Maybe you're at ease, even with this topic that we're presenting here about who Jesus is. Maybe there's just this uncertainty about, you know, Where I believe on these certain key aspects of faith, but recognize is that you don't need the answer in the here and now right today because sometimes it takes a while to process. It takes time. And if you don't have the patience to do that, you're going to struggle with the deeper aspects of faith. Sometimes you have to go to sleep in a little bit of discomfort so you can wake up in the morning with the calm after the storm. This is what I'm saying for you is that as you work through aspects of faith, don't just look for the quick, easy answer. Take some time and recognize that sometimes it takes years. I love this as I've been basically working theology for the past two decades. And in that time, I still have plenty of questions and areas of unease that I've not found response to. I think this is something that Paul is trying to do, even by the length here. It takes time. Notice Paul does this in a lot of uh, books that he writes in the New Testament. Verse one, Paul begins by by claiming to be an apostle. Why does he do this in almost every book? Here, I think there's two reasons. First, he's writing to a church that doesn't know him personally. Paul went throughout the ancient world, all around the Mediterranean, starting new churches. But sometimes those churches were started by people below him, like Timothy, that was mentioned here earlier. I'm not going to go too hog wild this morning because you know I really want to because my geekiness just oozes out through me. And I had to put together some sort of map for us to understand this church. Colossae was uh, in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And what's very interesting is the idea that Paul didn't visit it is very interesting because there's other places nearby, Hierapolis and Laodicea, that were much more important cities than Colossae. But here's the thing, is that even though they didn't have a personal interaction with Paul, they still came to this faith through different messengers. And what Paul is trying to let them know here is that I'm writing you this letter. I'm a credible voice of authority. But there's a second thing that I think Paul is trying to do here. Is he's saying, hey listen, I'm an apostle, which means I am somebody that you can emulate. Somebody who you can follow and live your life after. That's the type of stuff that usually makes us queasy when it comes to faith. Again, I love the idea of Jesus because Jesus is this concept and idea who hasn't done wrong. I'm less excited about somebody like Paul who takes some knocks theologically. Or even if we want to localize this even more, the idea that I could stand here on the stage and just like, you need to be like Steve probably would make you feel icky because you know me and you know what a jerk I can be. But here's the thing about that is that me as a person of faith ought to try hard not just to know what we need to believe but be able to live it to the point that others want to copy it and that's what Paul is trying to do. This is one of the things that I love about Paul's leadership is that he leads because we look in the Bible and we always see what all that Paul writes and we're like he's an egghead who wants to tell people how to live. That is not who Paul was at his core. He led by serving and suffering. Friends, that's the type of life that people want to follow. You know, one of the reasons that when we turn on TV and we see politicians or religious leaders or or just people who are sometimes famous, but one of the reasons that we are repulsed by who they are is because we want to see leaders who are doing so with a posture of humility that we want to copy and emulate. Later here, uh, um, I think we'll get to this next week, but just the idea, later in this chapter, Paul writes, when he's talking about the good news, you've heard it proclaimed, you're reading about now, and Paul says, of all of this message, I've become a servant to it, so I'm lower than it. The difficult thing with leaders is that we always assume who they are. We, we assume that they're, they're just trying to get their way out of this. The best leadership is one that starts off with humility. So when Paul is claiming here, listen, I'm an apostle. He's not an apostle that's saying, you need to listen to me, do everything I say. No, he says, I, I've got some concepts and ideas for you, but I'm going to live it out. Incarnationally, just like Jesus, I'm going to serve. We want to follow those who are ready to serve am going to read right here, verses 2 through 6, please, and we'll, we'll continue on and on.
1: To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the, wor- the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as, as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth.
0: What we're going to do here is we're going to unpack verse 2. Because if you read verses 3 through 6, this is just some flowery language of Paul trying to encourage and compliment the people. He's like, this is who I see in you. But can we focus on this idea about the faithful brothers and sisters who are in Christ? And let me just talk about that first, the, that end phrase right there. What does it mean to be in Christ? We come up with many different words for the word Christian you know when somebody now says it used to be like okay we would just call ourselves Christian but because the term Christian has been co-opted so much that it's difficult we come up with these terms to make us feel different It's, you know so it's like we're not like them we're we're sometimes calling ourselves Christ followers or, or maybe just servant of Jesus we come up with all these things here Paul says for you who are in Christ basically I think we need to grapple with this idea what does it mean to be Christians And stick with me because this isn't just a universal answer that you should memorize. But to talk conceptually about what Paul is referring to right here. Christians are those who are consecrated and set apart from the rest of the world through holiness. Consecrated and set apart from everybody else through holiness. Now, if I'm gonna use this as a working definition, I then need to define that term holiness because that's a very churchy word, right? When I say something is holy, usually I'm just prefacing it to a cuss word after it. So I need to figure out, you know, what does that mean to be holy and live in holiness? And I wanna offer you two different ways. There are negative aspects of holiness, meaning that we define holiness by what it isn't, okay? That it is taken, be, to be taken away from something common or profane. And understand this, within holiness, that is what God sometimes calls us to do, right? We define ourselves, and there's this little phrase that I learned from a teacher in high school. I even used it in Bible study with a men's group a couple weeks ago. The idea that I don't drink or chew or go with girls who do, right? Like, that's what makes me anyone, And even just like, okay. They're like, we are not laughing today, and I'll just let that one out there. But understand this, don't you sometimes define yourselves by what you don't do? How many times do you maybe look on the Facebooks or or, or in the media and just say, hey, at least I'm not a, a total debag like that person, right? Like they're horrible people. I'm better because I separate myself from what is common, what is not God or what is even profane the opposite right the idea of profane is the opposite of holiness and profanity coming from there should show us this concept of what it means to separate ourselves from that many Christians for generations viewed their walk in holiness defined by what they don't do what they avoid and by the way, that concept even goes back to the first century in the time of Jesus of the rabbis who were so passionate of, about keeping the law. They made whole sets of laws over the law to make sure that they were really holy. Now listen, this, there is an aspect to this that is true. There are negative aspects that we need to. We, we need to be set apart from the rest of the world. But at the same time, there is a positive dimension of holiness, which means set aside to serve and be made of good use by God. And I think this is what Paul is asking of the church in Colossae. What he wants them to do is to see their lives as being so closely intertwined to God that they are on a mission. One of the things that I like about our, you know, like a uh, religious ideology, I guess you could say, our, uh, the, the, the $2 theology word is ecclesiology, how we operate as a church, is that there is no separation between clergy, clergy and laity, between ministers and people in the pews, because functionally they are the same. We 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 talk about ministers being called out, being separated, being consecrated, being ordained, but biblically, as it comes down throughout the scriptures and Paul writes this and other New Testament authors it's the idea that we all have been called by God to do things for him even if you didn't go to seminary and become a minister you as a follower of Jesus are in ministry and you are called to do something in your life and you might be like what I do in the medical field is important but it's not like this calling It's not like Jesus needs me to work with patients, but at the same time, understand is that it transcends a job or a vocation. You're called to do something great for them. That is the holiness that you are called to. So as the people here in Colossae are in Christ, we also see this word faith and faithful used over and over within these first few verses. Again, it's just like, the, you know, it was like an easily accessible Scrabble word that could be used in perpetuity by Paul. It's like, hey, if I use enough faithfuls, I like get, get a coupon for something later. He's using faith and faithful over and over and over in these verses. Some scholars have suggested the reason that he is emphasizing this is because in their community, there were people who had not been faithful and they fell away from faith. And that's a believable thing, right? Because think about this, how hard is it sometimes to be a person of faith in today's world being bombarded with this, yet we live in a country where Christianity still reigns supreme over any other system of faith. Friends, I'm a horrible golfer, I'm playing some golf tomorrow, but even I could tee up a ball and hit a ball across the streets sometimes to hit church, to church, to church. We're usually defined not even by the church we go to, but the church that we no longer go to anymore. So it's this idea that we live in a country where Christianity is so prevalent. It's commonplace for us. But in Colossae during this time in the first century, being a Christian was something completely foreign. Do you understand that the Romans used to call Christians and Jews pagans because they only believed in one God? So in this time, it's very believable that they could have fallen away. And one of the things then that Paul is trying to do here is make sure is that, listen, you are the faithful. Continue to be faithful. Don't give up. Don't give up. I love this in chapter 2. Paul will later write to the, the Colossians to stand firm in your faith just as you were taught. Now, this brings up something incredibly interesting in all of Paul's letters, because if you read the New Testament, just go through through sometimes, every once in a while, there's an issue in a church that Paul is writing to where he has to psh, open up a can on those people. And he needs to say, hey, by the way, you think it's cool that you're having an affair with your mother-in-law? Like, seriously, like, this type of thing happened to church? And Paul's like, don't! No! Not cool! Every once in a while, Paul has to pull out his theological two-by-four and take a swing at the people to whom he's writing to. Here we have an instance in Colossians where the church might have had these people who were not able to maintain their faithfulness, that were falling away. And yet, look how Paul positions himself right here. What does he do? Friends, he encourages them. He just says, look, I know things aren't optimal, but here's all the great things that you have done over the years. Paul is their greatest advocate. And we sometimes need to take that posture of just encouraging people. If we want them to correct, sometimes our reception is greater if we posture ourselves in positivity. Yes, it's fun to browbeat people. Yes, it's delightful sometimes to have a hateful tweet that goes out to condemn somebody else. But friends, it's a lot more difficult to work someone towards correction with positivity. And the reason that sometimes that's the necessary posture is because they've been beaten down so much they just, need some, them, they just need to know that someone believes in them. Think about you. Think about the way you react. As much as I grew up in old school time with, you know, like... You know some of you I don't know if you know this but man it was just like I was listening to comedy by Jerry Seinfeld the other day on his latest special but he's like you know what kids were like a nuisance it's like when you were a kid you could just go out and basically be gone for hours and hours on end and your parents would never know what you are because people just didn't care at all and at the same time discipline was something that was way more harsh than we would ever do because Oprah dissuades us from it right like The times have changed, but here's one of the things that's great is that we try to encourage positivity. It doesn't mean that discipline doesn't have its place. But are are you called to be that disciplinarian in some of your relationships? Or should you model your life after Paul and be positive? I'm going to skip down a few few verses here, Burke. Will you read verses 9 through 12, please?
1: For this reason, since the day we heard about you, We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience and, joyf- and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light.
0: Paul also does this at the beginning of a lot of his letters. You think, basically, it doesn't it seem like he's spewing what we would call Christianese? Like he's taking all of these very uh, biblical terms and just throwing them up into, you know, some, some sort of stew. And it's just like he's, he's pouring it out for them. You know, we see the words wisdom and knowledge and endurance and patience and spirit. Paul does this a lot to begin his letters. And for most of us, what we do then is we just move on to the better stuff, Right? Like I'm not even going to lie to you, as we put together this series, the beginning of Colossians chapter 1 opens up slower than anything else that he does in the rest of Colossians. So there's this part where you're like, let's just you know, punt and get to the good stuff and then we can start our journey together. But what we have to really realize, really realize, really realize is that this is the good stuff, people. This is the great stuff. Because what Paul is doing here in a church that needs some help that has seen some of their people falling away who couldn't maintain their faithfulness. Paul says, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to pray. And as he writes all this stuff, he's, this is his prayer. He is praying for them. He, it's not just like this lackadaisical prayer like what I do, you know, when you say, hey, something's happening, you know, my aunt's having surgery this week, and I'll be like, oh, I'll be praying for that, and then I never do. It's more robust than that. Anyone, and you're like, is, is he serious about that? No, just, just joking is just not working. That's fine. Look at what Paul does here, though. Paul's like, I'm not just going to say I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm praying for you for. I want God to unleash his wisdom and goodness on you so that any place where you are lacking, God pours that into you. Now, think about this, friends. That's a powerful prayer, right? Right? Is that not the type of prayer that you want to pray about you? Like, Heavenly Father, just pour into me so that I can be more patient, so that I can endure, so that I can have wisdom. Like, God, just bring the thunder down on me so that I can have all of this and be the better person. But notice that this is not a prayer for somebody on themselves, but from one person toward another. Friends, we sometimes forget that when we are struggling with a person, and when there's somebody in our life, we would rather just punch in the face. face. With faith, you can punch them in the face with faith, even if that makes you feel better. Even when we're frustrated with them, maybe instead of being mired in frustration, we ought to pray for them. When is the last time that you've been ticked off at somebody that you've just said, you know what I'm going to do right now? Instead of just being angry, I'm just going to launch a prayer from them just a prayer for them and I would challenge you in that way this week when somebody peeves you off and you're ready just to write that hateful spiteful email maybe open up Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 12 and just say I'm going to give the prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians and I'm going to make it about this person. Why? Because if we really believe in our place in the kingdom, we recognize the interconnectedness of us. This is one of the key differences of Christianity compared to all other faith systems is that you can be a devout follower of some other faith systems and live in singularity and not rely on each other. But recognize this is the way that it truly works within Christ's kingdom is that our interconnectedness with Jesus depends on how we relate to each other. And that many times my problem with you is really a problem between me and Jesus that I need to resolve. And I need to pray that God continues to bless you greatly. I get angry friends you get angry and frustrated with human beings. But instead of trying to find ways to, to, to do workarounds or solve our problems or, or, or maybe use certain tactics to get them to change their mind, maybe the simple solution is I need to pray harder for them. Because when I do this, I recognize that my place in the kingdom, it's not just Jesus and me, it's Jesus and we. Correct? It's how we interact and live together. Now, taking all that we've talked about, I've been just really contemplating all weeks, like, how do I wrap all that stuff up? And specifically, in this week where we've just had a lot of burdensome stuff, I have friends who are pastors in Las Vegas that have been dealing all week with what happened there last weekend. And it's just, it breaks my heart. But one of the interesting things about that is they're seeing right now is that that horrible horrible incident is making people start to look at their lives introspectively and say what what is this life for then if my life can be taken just so quickly what does it mean then for my eternity it's been encouraging to hear some of my pastor friends who have said that there has been just a groundswell of return to christ during this period i mean it's, it's horrible but at least there's encouragement from that And then what was really sad about this is you're trying to contemplate on this. And this is going to sound like the most ridiculous thing. But I took another hit to the uh, punch to the stomach this week when I found out that Tom Petty had died. Now stick with me because I, I, I don't know Tom Petty at all personally. I have no religious connection with Tom Petty, but I really just like the dude's music. It makes me smile and happy and yes when when he's singing about his last dance with Mary Jane I'm pretty sure it's about an individual named Mary and nothing else but still there's this point to where it's like when somebody passes and die you try to see the bigger picture so this is something I was I, I found interesting coming out of yesterday is that Tom Petty is from Gainesville Florida I don't know if you've ever been to Gainesville I don't know if you know sports, but Gainesville is the location of the University of Florida. You're like, Steve, that's a university, not sports. (laughs) Let's be honest. It's a sports university that just exists around the University of Florida football and basketball teams, right? So they show up at the swamp. That's what they call it because they're the Gators. It's this thing I could explain here. But what's interesting is that Tom Petty was from Gainesville, Florida. And because he passed away this week, during one of the halftime instances... What they decided to do over the loudspeaker was play one of his songs. And this is what it sounded like. We'll see if Dylan can get the sound for me. I don't know if you can hear it. Turn that up just a little bit. We might blow it out. So you can see, everybody singing in unison. I think they have the words on the screen. we got to wait for the chorus, because that's what we have to do. Because why? All right. Now, I'm going to go to the next slide, because here's this thing. Here's this thing, right? Um, watched that like three times last night and I hate the University of Florida by the way it's not like I hate them like we don't have a bad relationship I really just don't care for Steve Spurrier and all that stuff and actually I saw Tim Tebow this week which sounds like a story but he was at a conference so he's a nice man of God but one of the things that messed him up is he went to the University of Florida and that was like a moral decision gone awry I say all of this to get to the point is that I watched that over and over because there's something when you're in a place and you have a bunch of people just singing at the top of their lungs a song is that not true Isn't it weird how music can do that more so than anything? I can get a bunch of people in the room together, huge crowd, maybe they're even applauding, but there's nothing like when you get a bunch of people together singing a song together, right? Now, unfortunately, which is probably true at the University of Florida, sometimes it is fueled by alcohol, and inebriation is the spirits working to make that happen. However, I think it works. So this is what I want to try just right now with this, is that will you this is not a worship song so don't raise a hand but can you read the words on here do you know the song won't back down do some of you know it okay I I want you to sing that loud and you're not going to do it but I'm going to try to get us there like can we do this just do this for me I'm going to mute myself so it's not or, or Dylan can pull me down so it's not too bad okay at the gates of hell, but I won't back, go to the chorus, I won't back, hey baby, you need to sing louder, there ain't no easy way out, I really, I, I was a worship leader at one time, just want you to know that. It feels, it feels weird singing that loud in a church. And some of you are just like, I'm just going to lip sync because that would be great because Steve does it enough. Here's the thing, though, that comes from me. is like I said, there's something about when you get a bunch of people together singing at the top of the lungs. It's just, it's, I don't know. It's just, spe- and it gives you goosebumps, right? Do we realize that that is what heaven is going to be like? The apostle John in Revelation chapter 19 verse 1 said after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I am a theologian, but I can't project what heaven is going to look like, but I'm going to think that it looks a little bit like 90,000 people singing to Tom Petty with less alcohol being present. I just have this feeling that that's what it's going to look like. And the reason that that visual does me well is because it makes me see that my faith isn't just about me, it's about how we, the people of God, come together. One of the key reasons why Jesus wins is Jesus wins for all of us. Jesus wins for everyone. It doesn't matter your social economic background. It doesn't matter your intelligence. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter skin pigmentation. None of that matters because in the kingdom of God, Jesus brings us all together as a beautiful choir. Choir. So when I read here in a few verses, when Paul writes, Jesus or God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, that keeps me going. That's what makes me excited. Because I recognize that it's not just about this here and now struggle, but what Jesus does is he makes us free. And in the middle of darkness, he brings light. Maybe right now you are in a dark place and it could be any place on the spectrum. Maybe it's just that email you don't want to have to send this weekend or that work project that's staring at you. Maybe it is just some familial issue that you are struggling with and you have to confront somebody you love and it's paralyzing you. Jesus got all of that, y'all. Jesus is over all of it because he brings us from the dominion of darkness into his kingdom. And that's why Jesus wins. And that's one of the reasons why as we continue to worship him, we have a time of communion. What is communion? It's this time of worship that reminds us. It reminds us of what Jesus did for us. And I say this all the time, and if there's anything for some of you regulars who have been here for years with us or if it comes down to, you know, communion is about community. It's about us together. It's about us together coming together and keeping Jesus central to all that we are. So we're going to conclude our time of worship with a time of communion. If you're a follower of Jesus we're going to pass around these trays. We invite you to take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and when you have the opportunity to partake of communion. We're going to worship him now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example of your servant Paul and how he treated the church at Colossae. I thank you, Father, that he took this posture of encouragement and prayer and would ask that we see that in others too because you lift us up just as your son Jesus was lifted up on the cross and gave all to bring us out of darkness into the light. So as we remember a tragic time this morning, as we remember the cross, and we remember through eating the bread and the cup that remind us of his body and blood, we give thanks to you for bringing us into the light in his name. Amen.